Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 35. Psalm chapter 35, as we continue our series in Psalms that we've entitled Melodies of Faith, because after all, the Psalms are songs. They are, they are songs that the Hebrew uh, people have been singing for years. Uh, the first uh, few Psalms are written by David. I'm still in what we call the Davidic Psalms. He wrote this one, Psalm 35, as we look through our sermon series. And we look at this subject, destroy my enemies, question <laughs> mark, how to pray when they're out to get us, how to pray when they're out to get us. One of the things that I love about preaching through books of the Bible is as, as chaplains or as pastors, and in our case as a team of pastors who preach through God's Word, we know where we're going. We know from now to Christmas we're going to be preaching through the Psalms. Now we, there's 150 Psalms. We selected certain ones. But as we go through, it is amazing to me that the Psalms always fit the occasion and as we just yesterday commemorated 20 years from 9-11-2001, I think we'll all see that we couldn't have picked a better psalm uh, to look at on this weekend where we remember such tragic events. Many of you are here because of that event 20 years ago. There are some here who served in the military prior to 9-11, but I'm looking at a lot of folks there's a few folks in here who might not have been born September 11, 2001, but are now serving in the military. There are some people here who, after those tragic events happen, I would dare say that we all join the military for many different things. Many times it's to, for our careers, for our families. We feel called to do it. Many times it's benefits. But I, but I imagine for, for many of us, there is sort of a, a desire to, to right a wrong a desire to be a part of something greater than ourselves where we can fight evil in this world. It's interesting as I think about that because Psalm 35 not only is God's word and we should read it, but it also has a history in our country. As I was studying, I ran across this. It was very interesting. The First Continental Congress, September the 7th, 1774, we were, that's 1774, that's before 1776, obviously, before the Declaration of Independence, before, technically before the Revolutionary War. But at the same time, there was a group of people over here in North America who began to think taxation without representation was a bad thing, and it was put on their hearts that maybe they should have their own country. And they met as a Congress with all the representatives from the states. And one of the first things they did in that Continental Congress was they had a prayer. That prayer was offered by a man by the name of Jacob Duchesne. He's an interesting fellow. He was a prominent leader in Philadelphia. His grandfather, this pastor Jacob Duchesne's grandfather, sailed to America with William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania. Jacob Duchesne, the pastor, his dad was Colonel Jacob Duchesne Sr. He was the mayor of Philadelphia. And he helped Benjamin Franklin, perhaps you've heard of him, in 1748, he helped Ben Franklin raise an army, 
militia of private citizens to fight in the, at that time, the French and Indian War. This guy has quite a, quite a, quite a story. He was in the first class of the University of Pennsylvania, and he found, which was founded by, again, Ben Franklin. He graduated valedictorian in 1757. He then went to Cambridge in England, and he studied to be, guess what, a pastor, and he was an Anglican minister. His brother-in-law was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. As they were starting this Continental Congress and starting to make decisions on behalf of the people, they called on Jacob Duchesne to pray. He was an Anglican minister, and Anglicans use what's called the Common Book of Prayer for daily readings. Well, on September the 7th, 1774, guess what the scripture reading was? It was Psalm chapter 35. So he decided to use what was already in the lectionary. He read Psalm 35, which we've already read a few verses of already this morning. He read the entire psalm, and then he prayed. I want to read for you a little bit of his prayer. Here's what he said. He said, Lord, look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to thee, listen to this, from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection. I wish I could go around talking like this today, but it just doesn't, doesn't work. Desiring to be henceforth dependent only on thee. To thee they have appealed for the righteousness of their cause. To thee they do now look up for that countenance and support which thou alone canst give. And he says this, Take them therefore, Heavenly Father, under thy nurturing care. Give them, listen to this, wisdom and counsel and valor in the field. Defeat the malicious designs of our cruel adversaries. David sounds a lot like that too, by the way, we'll see. Convince them of the unrighteousness of their cause, and if they persist in their sanguinary purposes, I really don't even understand what that means, but I sure do like to say it. If they persist in their sanguinary purposes of their unerring justice sounding in their hearts, constrain them to drop the weapons of war from their unnerved hands in the day of battle. I'm ready to go do something just listening to that. It's, it's, it's pretty hua, it's pretty, it fires me up a little bit. Well, John Adams was present when he prayed this prayer, and John Adams, you may know, he was uh, one of our presidents, and he wrote all the time to his wife, Abigail, who very much kept up with politics. And in that letter, John Adams told his wife, essentially, I'll summarize it, certainly not as eloquently as he wrote it, but he, he said, Abigail, this man was the right man, the right place, the right time certainly for the right message that these people needed to hear. God certainly ordained uh, this time and this reading of his word. I thought that was interesting as we look at Psalm 35. I believe Psalm 35 had something to say to those men who met in 1774. I believe God's word. I believe Psalm 35 has something to say to you and me today. Let's go back and read a little bit of it together. Beginning in verse 1, look at verses 1 through 3. I want you to, to notice... This, this battle language of David. He says, contend, O Lord, in verse 1, with those who contend with me. He says, fight against those who fight against me. And then he has this, take hold of the shield and the buckler. He's talking to God, asking God to do this. He says, rise up for my help. He says, draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. And then he says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. 
Last week, Chaplain Burris reminded us that in the Psalms, in the collection of the 150 Psalms, there are many different types. There are some that are focused on the worship of God. There are some that are work at work focused on repentance and forgiveness. There are some that are focused on creation. There are some that are laments, that is, there are cries out to God. This psalm is a lament of sorts, but even more specifically, it is what some refer to as an imprecatory psalm. That's a fancy word that just means the author is asking God to do something on his behalf, essentially to defeat and destroy his enemies. To defeat and destroy his enemies. As we go through this psalm, I'm also going to take some time to look into the New Testament because here's what I believe as I read this psalm. I believe you and I, as we see David crying out to God against injustice, as we see and hear, we're going to hear David saying, God, I need you to get them because I can't do it on my own. As we see David crying out, he's been mistreated. People have been evil to him. I believe we can look at the specifically the life of Christ and how he suffered and how he was mistreated. And I think we can learn a lot about how, how we can apply this psalm to our life today. The first thing I want us to see is point number one. We're going to see in verses 1 through 10, we're going to see a call for God to act. We're going to see David call on God, a call for God's in verse 1. It says, contend with, with those who contend against me. You could say, a call for God's contention. We've already read verses 1 through 3, this military language asking God, God, I need you to act on my behalf. Well, look at verse 4. Specifically, verses 4 through 6, in my Bible, I underline these words, let them. He says that over and over. He's asking God to do something on his behalf. Here's what David's asking God to do to his enemies. Let them, verse 4, be put to shame who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed. In other words, let them lose. I can't help but think about what Pastor Duche prayed in 1774. He was praying to God that, that the enemies, which at the time was the British, would, 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 would fail, that they would not overcome. He says in verse number 5, let them be like chaff before the wind. In other words, let them just sort of be gone. And then it says, interestingly, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. It says in verse 6, again, let their way be dark and slippery. And it says again, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. By the way, if you go through the Old Testament and you look up the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it shows up a lot. There are times, I believe, in the Old Testament where the, the angel of the Lord is specifically talking about Christ himself. David, in this passage, is essentially, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if, if he's specifically talking about Christ here when he says the angel of the Lord, but I can tell you this. David is crying out to God and saying, God, whoever, what, however you can do it, the angel of the Lord would be great if you want to use the angel of the Lord, but how, whatever you can do to stop my enemies, he's saying, I pray that they would do that. Now, it's interesting, you may already be thinking, when you hear this psalm, this I want you to get them, God, type psalm, you may already in your mind be formulating, well, wait a minute, how does this, how does this line up with the New Testament? How does it line up with places that say things like in Romans 12, 
Don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Look at verse 7. He says, David says, without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him and let him fall into it to his destruction. I want you to notice that in this prayer, this is not David sort of taking matters into his own hands. I, I was reminded that I was studying this of, of, of one of the Godfather movies, The Godfather Part Two, as Michael Corleone, that uh, great picture of, uh, I think, human depravity. This was the man who said, I'll never be like my dad, if you know the story of The Godfather, and then he went on to become more notorious, more, more of, a, more of a, a, a godfather, warlord, gangster kind of guy who had a lot of people killed and did a lot of bad stuff. If you, spoiler alert, that's kind of what he does. And as, he, as he, his, his empire is dominating and he's doing more bad stuff, he has some people killed in the movie and his stepbrother Tom says, why do you feel like you have to wipe everybody out? And Michael Corleone says, I don't feel like I have to wipe everybody out, just my enemies. And, and he takes it upon himself to, in fact, wipe out his enemies. Well, I want to point out in this passage, this is not David wiping out his own enemies. This is David crying out to God to do something that it seems like David has come to a point in his life when he realizes he cannot do it on his own. I can't help but wonder, are there some of us here who are living our lives right now scrambling to try to, quote, fix something that you cannot fix or do something about something that you have no control over? Do I have any self-identified fixers in here who have to fix everything and be in control? Raise your, I see those hands, God bless you, all over this place. Even without heads bowed and eyes closed, you're admitted to being a fixer. Especially in our military culture, we live in a culture where it is, you get promoted on results. You look good in front of other people's eyes by what you can do. And friends, I want you to, I want you to work hard. I want you to do your best. I, I want all those things for your life, but there's going to come a time, and there may be a time right now in your life where you are dealing with giant-sized problems, you are living in a world, you are in the middle of circumstances that you cannot fix. And if you were honest with yourself and I ask you, do you feel in charge? You would have to say no, wouldn't you? David is asking God to act. David is asking God to act. David finds himself in a place where he is wrongfully accused as he cries out to God. When I think about this, I think about this point in the life of Jesus. You could say this. Think about the arrest of Jesus. One of the prophecies of Jesus talks about he was, he was acquainted with our grief. He was a man of sorrows. I share the life of Jesus with you because as you think about David and his injustice that he dealt with, as you think about the injustices that maybe you deal with, our Lord dealt with injustice too. Think about his arrest. Think about Judas who betrayed him, who knew where he was going to be and, and traded him for those pieces of silver. And then you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you in Luke chapter 22. Here's what Jesus said when they came to arrest him. It's going to sound a lot like Psalm 35 to me. 
Jesus said, have you come with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Jesus wasn't a robber. Jesus was innocent. While I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay your hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. In the life of Jesus, as he was arrested, he willingly was arrested because he was willing to suffer for you and for me. First Peter said of him this, First Peter chapter 2 said, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. I want to remind us that as we think about Jesus' arrest, as we think about how Jesus suffered, you and I can cry out to God because what we really need in our life, what I need in my life, is not so much for me to fix something. I desperately need a Savior. I need a God who looks on this world and he sees it all, and I need to cry out to him to act because he is the one who can make a difference. Point number two is this. We're going to see David, we're going to see a call from David for God to see the wrong in verses 11 through 21. In verses 11 through 21, what David is doing essentially is asking God for his acknowledgement of these atrocities, asking God for his acknowledgement of the fact that David was mistreated. Let's read it together. By the way, I'll back up just a little bit. Verses 9 and 10, you see uh, David worshiping God. He, he says, as he calls out to God, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. It sounds a lot like many of the other Psalms we've already looked at. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong, the poor and needy from him who robs him. David, again, that, that idea that he desperately needs God. Now look at verse 11, this idea of calling on God to see. He says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things I do not know. They repay me evil for good, and my soul is bereft. And then David's going to point out that in his actions, he acts rightly. He acts properly. He acts morally. But in the they, the enemies, they act sinfully. Look at this in verse number 13. But I, when they were sick, in other words, when David's enemies were sick, he says, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed. Uh, my head bowed on my chest. In other words, when they were sick, he, he mourned for them. He prayed for them. Look at verse 14. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments for his mother. I bowed down in mourning. So he's saying, when my enemies were sick, I mourned. I did the right things. I prayed for them. But look at verse 15. <clears throat> but at my stumbling, in other words, when the tables are turned, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Have you ever done good for somebody else only to have them do bad to you in return? Have you ever had somebody do good for you to only do bad to them in return? That's what he's talking about. He says, <clears throat> they've gathered together against me wretches, he says, whom I did not know, tore at me without ceasing. Profane mockers at a feast, they, they gnash at me with their teeth. It's the, it's the most indignation, the, the, the way he could describe it, and the most, the most anger he could come up with on paper. That's how they treated him. They were treated falsely. He's looking at God, and he's saying, God, do you see this? I'm over here living right. 
I'm taking care of people. I pray for others when they're sick. And then when it comes my turn, when I fall, they, they, they rejoice at my calamity. They're happy that I'm going through tragedy. And they come after me with as much anger as a human being can muster. That's what he's asking. He says, God, do you see all this? Well, the answer is yes, God does see all this. And as I think about those verses, again, I cannot help but think about our Lord. I cannot help but think about Jesus and what he dealt with in this. As we talk about God seeing the wrong, not only Jesus' arrest, but what about the trial of Jesus? What about that corrupt trial? Do you remember what happened? <clears throat> they arrested him. And as you read the gospel narratives, you kind of see at one point he's in front of the Jewish leadership. Then he's in front of Pilate. Pilate sends him back to the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership sends him to Pilate. There's all kinds of things that are that are wrong with this trial in the sense of it's a farce. It's, a, it's not just. For example, if you look at rabbinical law, rabbinical law meaning the Jewish law of, of how, they would, how they would try people, a trial couldn't be held at night because it needed to be in public. Well, they, 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 tried, they arrested Jesus at night, and under the period of darkness they made all these accusations. It couldn't be held during a feast. That was the law. Well, guess what? It was right in the middle of a feast, right? Remember, they had all come there for Passover and unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A man can only be condemned under the testimony of two credible witnesses. The accused couldn't be forced to testify against himself. The first thing they did is ask him a bunch of questions, try to get him to testify against himself. If a man was condemned, the law said he couldn't be sentenced until the morning of the third day. Well, they didn't take that long. Jesus' trial was a farce. As you read through David's cry to God saying, hey, I was doing the right things, yet they mistreated me, can you not think about Jesus in this trial? Can you think about him who knew no sin? Uh, him who went about doing good, it says in one place, who healed people, who loved people, who did everything for others. He says he didn't come even to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In this one who knew no deceit, they falsely accused and in this trial, they falsely convict him. Remember, they spat on him at one point and beat him with their fists and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Remember that? Remember what Pilate said. Pilate said, I found no guilt in him. Pilate wanted to let him go, but what did the crowd say? They said, go, give us Barabbas. What injustice. An innocent man, there's, there's, there's nothing worse than being accused of something you didn't do. If you're like me, you've been accused of a lot of things that you did do. My dad tells a story of a, of a school teacher who, she, uh, she lived to be a, a, very, a very old lady, and he got to talk to her as, a, as, an, uh, as an adult, and he recalled a story to her about when he was, when he was in school that he had um, been accused of doing something, and he got it. Back then, we spanked people in school or wrapped him on the hand or something. It was some sort of corporal punishment. And, and he took his corporal punishment. And even to, as, a, as a grown man, he said, I never did. I didn't do that. I was falsely accused. And so as a, as a grown man, he got to confront his teacher about it. And I can't remember her name. He said, Miss So-and-so, you know when you whipped me for that. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. All these years, I just want you to know I was innocent. And the teacher said, well... You might have been innocent that time, but I'm sure you got away with some things that were probably broke even. You probably deserved it anyway. But there is nothing worse, is there, 
than to be accused of something that you did not do. Jesus is the ultimate picture of that. As David calls out, God, do you see this? What did the crowd finally say? What do I remember Pilate said? What am I supposed to do with Jesus? They said, crucify him. Crucify him. In John chapter 15, verse 25, it's the only place that Psalm 35 is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples, they hated me without a cause. If you look at verse number 19 in Psalm 35, that's what they say. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink the eye that is being deceitful who hate me without a cause. That phrase is also quoted in Psalm chapter 69. Jesus endured this time where people hated him without a cause. There may be times when someone hates you without a cause. My encouragement to you is to turn to God who sees all these things and who will make all these things right. Point number three is this. We call on God to act. We call on God to see. But then in verses 22 through 28 in Psalm 35, we're going to see number three, a call for God's vindication. A call for God's vindication. He uses that word in verse 23. I want you to look at it. We're going to start in verse 22. He acknowledges in verse 22, you have seen, O Lord. In other words, he's already asked God to see. Now he's to the point where he goes, okay, God, you've seen it. Now he's asking God to do something. Be not silent, O Lord. Be not far from me. He says, awake and rouse yourself for my vindication for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. When I think about David's cry to God to vindicate him, I can't help but think about not just the arrest of Jesus or the trial of Jesus, but also under this idea of calling for God's vindication, the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus. You know the story. You know they found him guilty. You know Pilate, remember, washed his hands of these things. And on that Friday, they crucified him. You remember they stripped him and put a robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they spat on him and and beat him and took his garments and and all those things, and they cried out to him, you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. We'll save yourself then. They're mocking him. They do all these things. One person said, well, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Notice that Jesus willingly in this story laid down his life, didn't he? He said in John chapter 12, he said, I'm not praying to be saved from this hour, but that God's name will be glorified. In another place, it talks about that he could call 10,000 angels, but he didn't. In fact, while he's dying on the cross, literally while he's on the cross, what does he pray? One of the things, Father, forgive them. Again, I can't help but think of that passage in 1 Peter that I mentioned earlier. Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile while suffering. He uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
Look at verse number 24 in Psalm 35. He says, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your, what does it say? Righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Jesus knew this was God's plan. As David cries out for God to vindicate, you and I have the advantage of we, we know God's entire inspired word, the Old and the New Testament, and we know that God's ultimate vindication came through Jesus, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter's preaching, he makes a statement. He said, this man Jesus, he says, on the one hand, he's delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross. Then he turns around and says, you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. But then he says, God raised him up again. Jesus was crucified, but through the resurrection, God makes all things new. God rights the wrongs. God saw and God intervened. God vindicates the cries of his people. You may be like me, and in a roundabout way, I, I, I... 9-11 impacted my coming into the military, I think. I was a youth minister in September 11, 2001. I remember, like many of you, we could all go around the room, and where were you when you heard about these airplanes crashing into the towers and and the other other ones that transpired and and all the stories and, and all the tragedy and all the evil. I remember being a youth pastor. I was very young, and Looking back, I don't, I don't know what I said to those teenagers when we met. I don't know what I said to the church. I, I don't remember, but I remember, uh, I remember all the church coming together, like many of you probably do in your different faith communities, and, and I remember those days. And, and I, at that time, I wasn't thinking about coming into the, the military or anything. I was still plugging away at seminary and those kind of things. And, but then I always, for, the, for nine years before I came into the military, I was at a I was at a church that was very patriotic, a church in South Carolina, like many, who I had congregants who were, who were National Guard and who, for many of their years, their National Guard time consisted of going once a month for their uh, drill and then going two weeks for their yearly training. But that all changed after 9-11, didn't it? And the war on terror, and it wasn't just active duty uh, deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan like many of you have, but it was, it was National Guard, it was Reserve, and, and I knew people who, who, ser- who served in Iraq, and I knew people who served in Afghanistan. As, as time went by, I had a couple of them uh, encourage me to think about being an Army chaplain. I, I didn't know anything about what that was about, but then I had a pastor who I served with who really tightened the screws on me a little bit and said, this, is, this really would be something for, for maybe you and, and your family. And as I talked to him, I still remember Cheryl and I, I remember looking at the computer like, like you have to uh, to start anything. You've got to start somewhere. So I'm looking, and, and uh, I said, oh, I, I'm sure I don't qualify. I'm sure I'm too old. I was, I was real big then. I was like, I'm too fat. They won't take me, whatever. But sure enough, I looked at the requirements, and I said, okay, check, check. I met all the requirements. And as I started thinking about it, one of the things that appealed to me was serving, as I, as I began to talk to some people, serving alongside soldiers who were willing to sacrifice, serving alongside people who were willing to be a part of something greater than themselves, serving their country in a time where people 
were continually deploying, going to war, people continually raising their hands saying, here am I, send me. I started to feel in my heart, and I think Cheryl did too, that, that this was the ministry that God had called us to. And the rest is history. He became an army chaplain in 2013. Many of you have a similar story. And I have a hunch that many of you, somewhere along the way, probably felt this righteous indignation of, hey, what happened on 9-11 was evil, was tragic. And I'll raise my hand and I'll be a part of protecting our country. I'll be a part of serving our country. Thank you to each and every one of you who've, who've done that. I think about that First Continental Congress. I can't help but think that these men, many of them were Christians, who were in their hearts felt the need to be a part of something greater than themselves, who said, wait a minute, this isn't right. This tyranny is, is, not, is, not, the, is not right. We're going to serve. We're going to fight for our families. We're going to fight for our country. Well, even on a greater level, you and I have a greater need, and that need is our sins need to be forgiven. And guess what? You and I can't fix that one. I can't be good enough to fix my sin. The only way I can have my sins forgiven is through trusting in Jesus Christ, this one who suffered, this one who died, and this one who rose again. Jesus paid it all. We trust in Jesus because Jesus has done the work for us. This morning, will you cry out to God? Will you cry out to him and say, God, in the middle of injustice, in the middle of mistreatment, I know that you are in control. I know that Jesus died for my sins, and I trust in you to lead me no matter my circumstances. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we go through our lives, we see injustices. We see wrongs. I pray that we too would cry out to you. God, we know that you hear us. We pray that you would act on our behalf. And God, we thank you so much for Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. And God, through it all, may our eyes be on you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.